Hi there, I'm Deb Crow, and I want to welcome you to season four of Imperfect, the heart-centered leadership podcast. This is a podcast where we connect, learn, and laugh together with authentic and courageous leaders from all over the globe. You will learn from leaders you haven't even met yet. You will gain new tools to add to your leadership toolkit because leadership belongs to all of us. It is not measured by stature or title. So please pull up a chair and listen in. This is the Imperfect Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. So welcome back to Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I connected with Michael Dector, I don't even know, I'm going to say sometime this year, and another fellow colleague and podcast guest, Hugh McLeod, had worked with Michael, and he said, if you get Michael on the show, it's going to be a great conversation. So Michael, welcome to the show. I am going to put your your full bio in the podcast episode description below, but I do want to just share a few of your accolades because they're impressive. And as a fellow Canadian, I I always love giving kudos to another Canadian leader. You were awarded the Order of Canada in, in 2004. You were awarded the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal in 2012. You were named Chancellor of Brandon University in 2013. And you were appointed to the Premier's Council on Improving Medicare and Ending Hallway Medicine in 2018. So I just want to say congratulations. I know my leadership questions are going to definitely demonstrate why you received these prestigious awards. And I just want to welcome you to the show and say thank you for taking the time. Well, I'm delighted to be here and congratulations on, on your new book. That's, My new book's uh, out, and I'm I'm yes. pretty excited, and I'll I yes. he, I will heed your advice as always keeping some in in the back of my car. I've I've yes. heard that from a few authors, and and you've written several books that we will also share below because there's just so much to share, and and I want to tap into your brilliance. So, my first leadership question to you, Michael, is. What was your biggest leadership takeaway after what we've gone through as a country and and, and a global citizen from COVID? Well, I I think the the biggest takeaway is how important leadership is. And we saw various kinds of leadership on display across the country and across the globe. And I have to say that I think the public are very smart about recognizing who's being straight with them and who isn't. And I found very early on um, myself waiting for the BC clip to come up, not only because I knew Bonnie Henry from her time in in Ontario, but I also thought she was a straight shooter and, and she wouldn't be trying to either falsely assure people or, on the other hand, to make them... Uh, more afraid than they should be, just very balanced. So I I think over time, it not only brought out uh, the leaders who were sort of innately capable of that, but I think it also shaped some leaders. Some some passed the test. I think some became more honest and more forthcoming as they felt the kind of pressure. Um, And some others stuck to what I would say is a, a, 
an all too familiar kind of talking points. And I, I think if there ever was a good reason for talking points, um, at some point, the public and voters expect their leaders to be able to internalize them and put them in plain language and not sound like they're reading from a script. And uh, so for me, I think it was a real test of, of leadership who, who just had it and knew how to express it and knew how to bring people along and who didn't and who, you know, needed a big stick and needed, you know, coercive measures. And, you know, it, and it was really the world leadership on display because you got the clips from Washington and from, you know, virtually everywhere. And it was also the case that some people who looked strong in the sprint part at the beginning faded because they were, I think, not able or not willing to move with the, as the, as the crisis evolved. And uh, we're still, we're going to have a second test of it, I think, not because I think the wave that's, likely to come is going to be as deadly or as crippling of the health system. But just, I think there'll again be this tension between people who can be forthright, give you advice and have you accept that advice and people that either have to try and scare you or have to try and order you. And so it's, it's a, it's a crucible of leadership styles. I, I love the way you frame that. And Various leadership styles is almost an understatement. And like you said, the ones in the forefront who were leading globally, they were in our in our bird's eye view every night on the television for many, many months. And I think I, I think that was a nice way that, that you kind of framed it. And it also allowed complacency to to kind of rise to the surface and be dealt with because I think leaders had time. They had time to breathe. They had time to pause. They had time to analyze and look at everything. And I think that was one of the many blessings that that came out of COVID. My my second question has permanent residency on the show. We've been we've been doing this for we're in season four now. So I've asked 250 leaders around the globe this question, and I, I can't wait to ask it to you. What imperfection? do you feel that Michael brings to his heart-centered leadership? Uh, well, human emotion. I mean, no matter how many times you tell yourself that you have to uh, not uh, fall in the pit of, of either anger or, or fear, you, you have to be really vigilant about not trying to lead from fear or anger. And... Uh, I've been through an experience on one of the boards where I chaired, where we moved from the CEO. I'll be very unclear about which board. Uh, we moved from a CEO who really had an old-style fear-driven leadership. His management team were afraid of him, not in a physical sense, but in a bullying kind of way. And he, when he retired, we replaced him with someone who'd been on the board for a long time, knew the organization and who led from more of a, a supportive approach. Uh, the results, the financial results of the organization improved dramatically over two years. And I said to the board as board chair, the most remarkable thing isn't the improvement. Lots of new CEOs, you know, kind of can find ways of improving things. 
the, the impressive thing is there wasn't a single change mm-hmm. of personnel. So the same people produced far better results here. being supported than being coerced, well, whatever you want to sort of right. characterize the other leadership stuff. Yeah, it is amazing when there's a good leader, isn't it? It is. And, but it's, it's a constant struggle because yeah. the work itself, the circumstances of the work, you know, cause anxiety, cause challenge, and you have to be very careful and uh, not to fall into uh, one of the many sort of uh, traps that await a leader, whether it gets too determined to get stuff done down the torpedoes, we're going to do this. Mm -hmm. If you kind of lead and and people feel equally committed, uh, that's one thing. But if you're trying to push people and uh, you don't have their full confidence or you're not understanding of their circumstances, you can go astray. So I, I uh, you know, I find myself, I think, a much better leader than I was when I was young and had determined to change everything in the world. Um, now I'm a little more selective of, of what might be worth changing and what might not be possible to change. But uh, I'm still always concerned that basic human emotion can get in the way of good leadership. Compassion wow. doesn't. It never does. And we've, mm-hmm. we've had a longstanding rule at the investment firm I've run now for 25 years, which is simply expressed as family come, comes first. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if your child's sick or if some event happens, you just go deal with it. You don't fill out paper. It's good if you have time to let us know so we can all kind of reshape and cover but um, to me, it's never been abused by anybody. In the mm-hmm. And it's not set down in numbers of days or, you know, anything like that. It's just, and, and you get tested. I had an, an employee who had, we'd hired and he hadn't started. He was going to start like on, on a Monday. And our Sunday, I got a call from him saying, my wife's father has died in Poland, and I may need to go to Poland to escort the body back to Canada. And I know I haven't even started work, but I said, well, go to Poland. And, you know, when you've dealt with all of that, then start work. But there's no question about it. If you need to go, go. Now, it turned out he didn't need to go. But he said to me, I won his wife as a, as a, as a fan forever. Because she was very worried to young children, she couldn't go. It's her father didn't want him. Anyway, it, it all worked out, but it was a test. Uh, and uh, you're occasionally sent these tests to, yeah. to remind you. Well, there's always an extenuating circumstance as well. And, you know, I write in my book that work shows up in our life and life shows up in our work. And and what I'm hearing clearly from you is you've had this beautiful, healthy, vital culture for over 25 years. And the and the foundation of it comes from being heart-centered and communicative. You just need to know what's going on. So like you said, your words, you can reshape and the work family can rally together to cover from whoever's dealing with their life happening. And just think what the world would be like if if every business adhered to that behavior, be a, be a different, be a different world. 
It, it would be. And uh, it's not, it, it, it doesn't take more than simple human decency, I think. And, yeah. and letting that, you know, guide you when, you know, there, there's always going to be numerical measures in, of success. But, you know, I, I've spent enough time on boards to realize that those are things that, uh, you know, it can be altered by clever uh, gouting and, and so on, that, that the really fundamental things are how do people feel about the work, how they Absolutely. feel about their colleagues, how they feel about the clients that we ultimately serve. And not having the fear to come to you even before the, like that gentleman starting for you, being approachable so that you can share some sad news going on in your life and know that it's not going to jeopardize your position. And just having that trust and rapport with staff to yeah. me is priceless. Well, and, and I, I remember learning two lessons from a very wise leader, a fellow named Lou Semenovich, who ran uh, the research uh, program at Sick Kids and then later at, at Sinai, or I may be getting those backwards, but he achieved remarkable success with researchers and also with donors. Mm. I said to him once, how do you do that? And he said, well, that I discovered when I first started running a lab that the researchers, bright as they were, didn't really see all the way through to the patient. So I would take the researchers to see the patients, this mm -hmm. was in sick kids, these kids with these odd diseases, these rare, some cases quite, uh, you know, difficult to treat and even lethal diseases. He said, when the researchers saw these children, their whole attitude in the lab changed. They became obsessed with finding, if it wasn't a cure, the next step on the way to a cure. And he said, similarly with donors, I would put on a dinner with the donors and I would bring the young researchers to talk about their work. And the donors, it was infectious. They, they you know, they, they just got enthusiastic about supporting the work. And I thought, how, how remarkably wise um, because I've been through all sorts of reviews of research facilities where they try to put out financial incentives, like if you invented something, you got to keep 25% of the proceeds or, you know, all kinds of mechanisms, but they were never as effective as simply letting the researchers see the patient and talk to the donor. And uh, sometimes simplicity is really important in these things. It's, you know, from a research perspective, when you can, I, I coached an epidemiologist once and he did a similar thing. And he said, it made my data come alive. Yeah. Because I understood the heart sense of what I was studying and why I was so passionate about research. And I think the gentleman you're speaking of, he, he bridged that gap so beautifully. And it, it was a very people-centric, heart-centered approach, which is which is such a great example to share. I love that. Now, I'm going to ask you a hard question, but I want to know the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. So think about when you started back in leadership, what do you think is the most significant leadership landscape change from when you first entered into the leadership world to now? If you had to pick one that was top of mind. Oh, I, I think Marshall McLuhan was 
essentially right about everything. That when I started, uh, communication was either by way of, uh, I started in government, uh, was either by way of writing a, you know, a memorandum or doing a, a, a presentation to a committee or mm-hmm. you know, as I advanced to the cabinet. But there were no visual aids. Mm-hmm. It was all words and had a, a good deal of storytelling at the cabinet level. Cab drivers played an in, inordinate role in terms of being views being ascribed to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, even one prime minister who I won't name, who, as far as I know, never rode in a cab, but he would frequently speak of what he'd learned from the cab driver. And uh, it was a way of kind of communicating. Uh, now the... Um, you know, not only social media, but just how powerful the internet, the ability to, you know, marshal large quantities of data in support of a, an insight or, or an argument, uh, that's really changed. I mean, I, I it's just a small story, but one of my classmates at Harvard undergraduate was Walt Isaacson, who's gone on to write a number of important books mostly biographies, jobs, and so on. But he did do a book about the origins of computing. Mm. And he gave most of the credit to the women who wrote the, the code, um, not the people that built the, the heart, mm. you know, tech. Mm-hmm. But um, he came to speak in Toronto, and, and my daughter got tickets because she was pretty convinced that I didn't know Walt Isaacson, that I, he might have been a classmate, but there was no chance that we actually really knew each other. And she missed that I'd been at a reunion and had a chance to catch up with them. But anyway, he, he came, he got up on the stage at the, uh, in Toronto and uh, he looked out and I was sitting with my daughter, her boyfriend in the front row. And he said, there's Michael Dexter. I remember when we carried our punch cards up the steps at the Harvard Computing Center together, because that's, that was computing in the early seventies when I was mm-hmm. first to you. You used punch cards. There was not no such thing as you know a, a digital uh, interface or um, what we now take completely for granted in terms of uh, those things. So to me, that is the biggest change because you're 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 not leading a hierarchical organization mm-hmm. where it's it's like the British public service mm-hmm. where you know there's all these levels and everyone and knows the code of conduct and, you know, you have the Yes Minister series and, uh, um, you know, that kind of style of management. Um, you, you now have a world where things are contested for better or worse in real time mm-hmm. in live media. And uh, I find it quite polarizing. I don't like it. But the truth of it is that people find some comfort from being able to choose between opposing views and a lot of information is conveyed. And sometimes, like you said, in a nanosecond. Yeah. Very, 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 you know, it's when I, when I talk to my two children who are in their mid to late twenties and I say, we didn't have email, we didn't have cell phones. And the look that I get of these big eyes and, it, it really shows how far we've come. And like you said, we, we've definitely had a big shift in the whole landscape of leadership. My last question is, what is your vision 
It can even be a wish if it's, if it's not a vision for the future of healthcare. If you could pick uh, one thing, what would it be? I would really like us to wrap healthcare around the patient mm-hmm. rather than still having, after all this time, a vision of healthcare where the patient goes somewhere to see someone who's supposed to know more than they do. We're supposed to be able to do something they can't do. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I, I express it in that kind of plain language because it's easy to get caught up in the mm-hmm. endless acronyms and buzzwords around healthcare. But, but simply put, um, my vision of healthcare is one in which you have an informed patient. They become informed both by having conversations with knowledgeable people, but also by being able to access a lot of information of a you know peer-reviewed sort online, and they're able to engage with the with health services as they need them, and and in a, in a knowledgeable way. And I had a recent experience. I was out fishing in the Brunswick. It's sort of an odd place for a health experience, but two of the people on the trip had urinary tract infections, mm. one male and one female. And we looked it up on the internet, and it said in New Brunswick, a pharmacist can, can mm. uh, prescribe and dispense a simple antibiotic on a repeat bit to refill a prescription that's been written by a doctor for a UTI. And then we discovered they could only do that if the person with the UTI was a woman. I think, I mean, you've got to imagine two former deputy ministers of health puzzling over this, (laughs) a pharmacy and a miramichi. (laughs) But um, it it illustrated to me a couple of things. One is people get recurring illnesses. So maybe they're managing chronic disease. Maybe it's just something they get every so often. And by the time they've had it a few times, they know a lot about how to treat it. Yeah. But we don't make it easy for them. We We've don't. made it harder for them to get a prescription. We, we, we're starting to tip over and say, well, if it's something you've had on a recurring basis and it's just a refill, it's not an addictive substance. It's yeah. you know, what you need to self-manage. You should be able to do that. And... I think we need to go even further in getting people to understand their real health risks. Um, and and I'll, I'll, I'll say this, you may want to cut out, but I had a long argument when Dr. John Evans and I were they worked together when I was Deputy Minister of Health. He was you know, a remarkable and, uh, advisor on an unpaid basis. He would just show up when he thought I needed advice and give it to me. And the argument we had was he felt that we would only change the medical profession, that we changed medical education. Yeah. And I believed then, but not now, that we could change the behavior of medical practitioners mm-hmm. by changing the financial incentives, you know, move from fee-for-service capitation. And then I watched over a period of a couple of decades um, a provider who was a very good provider, but who'd grown up in one mindset who really only wanted to look after me when I was sick. Mm. And then she retired and I got a, 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 and with great, you know, recognition for her contribution, rightly. And I got a new physician uh, who's half my age 
and who spent an hour with me right out of the gate. And when we finished the hour, I said, that's the most anyone's ever talked to me about my own health. And she said, yeah, I know one thing. I said, what's that? She said, I'm not treating you for anything. I'm not treating you for a single thing. So the whole conversation was how to prevent um, the various perils that are there in your lifestyle and your diet. What a progressive discussion. So it, it was lovely. And all I could think of was, Dr. Amit, you were so right. It, it was all about the training. Yeah, we, we could do a whole podcast on that. I have a child that sustained a brain injury. And I remember my family doctor saying, I had seven hours in medical school. What do you need and what do you want? Because I, I don't know this world. And she was inundated with patients. She also did a lot of pediatrics. She also delivered babies. She was so uh, spread thin that she was looking to me, like you described, as a mom who was in tuned, informed, what do you need? Um, and just, but I had that trust, that respect, but more importantly, that rapport with her because she knew that I had done my due diligence as the mama bear. And I was in the industry at the time as a neurotrauma case manager. And I'm like, this is what I need. But you're right. And we now have a new doctor as well. And I just had a very similar visit with a very similar conversation because she was new. And like you, blessed to not be on any medication and aging pretty good. Yep. And how, how are we going to keep it that way? What are you doing? Yep. And I was like, this is very, very progressive. I like this. Instead of just what do you need and, and writing me a script. Yeah. So I'm happy to hear that you've had a similar experience. Well, and I, I'm my wish for the future is that I'm hoping it's more patient focused. And I, I think we have a long way to go. And, and I know we've had lots of hurdles, but I, I, I'm an eternal optimist, Michael. I'm, yep. I'm going to stay in that that lane with that with that mindset. I, I join you in the optimism about, uh, about it, it is possible we have phenomenal, um, you know, and insightful practitioners. I think we, we need to build a, an environment that supports that aspect and moves people away from just absolutely being on the gerbil wheel and writing scripts and not asking yeah. And Why listening and not putting them in a box. Like if it yeah. doesn't sit in the neural box, yeah. then you don't throw them to a, a different discipline. I think, again, it's a yeah. time thing. And a lot of them are burnt out and exhausted because I know I've coached yeah. some, I've interviewed some, yeah. um, but I'm going to stay optimistic. Okay, I'm going to switch gears and I'm going to ask you my fab four. These right. are just four fun questions. We want to know what's sitting top of mind. First question, what is a word or phrase that shows up on a regular basis in your leadership language? Supportive would be one word. I, I also think, not one word, but I find people all talk to each other. Mm. And when I say, you know, Tony, my team comes to me and, and I say, you need to discuss this with. And then I find that they've written an email, haven't discussed it. And then things in writing, I've got a very diverse stance and things can be misinterpreted in yeah. the, in serious ways. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know, you know, 
converse seems to have gone out of the vocabulary, but communicate uh, has been overused. Uh, so I'm a little at a loss for the word. But connection. 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 Good word. Yeah. yeah. Second question. This could be at any time in your life. What is a book that you have read that really, really changed you? What was the title of that book and the author, if you remember? Yes. Strangely a novel. The title of the novel was A River Runs Through It. And the author was Norman McLean, who was a professor of English for many years at the University of Chicago. Mm. And it's a book that was later made into a movie with Robert Redford. It's about fly fishing. But it's not really about fly fishing. It's about life and the lessons one learns in life. And, uh, um, it. and it's a very philosophical book about life and the universe. And uh, uh, so it, it had a powerful effect on me when I first read it. And then decades later, I had a chance to become a fly fisherman. And so it, it had a literal impact on me on the tin to two and the various, mm-hmm. very specific things, but uh, a very soulful book. I've got lots of great books on this podcast when I've asked that question. So you've just added another one to the list for me. Okay, my third question is kind of fun, but I need to give you some context. I'm granting you a wish and you get to have dinner with a leader that you'd love to meet. Now, this leader could be living Maybe this leader's passed away. Who are you having dinner with, Michael? And what is the dinner conversation? Now, I'm, I'm really torn, but I, I would, the living person, although he's, his health is failing, I would like to have a dinner with, with Bill Clinton mm. um, to continue a conversation that he started at a dinner I was at. It wasn't a, it was a conversation, the whole small dinner, and it was, how shall I put it, a speech and a conversational tell. Mm-hmm. And I would like to continue that conversation. I, I think he was a, a brilliant leader in many ways, flawed in some other ways, but had insight and an ability to change the frame. It's a particular moment that, that galvanized it. It was a dinner in support of the hospital for sick children. It was at a tent at Aurora after a golf tournament. And uh, he began by saying, Hillary and I are patrons of the Arkansas uh, Hospital for Sick Children. And this morning I was able to tour the Hospital for Sick Children in in Toronto. Mm. And I walked in and I looked at everyone and I had the same feeling I had at the Arkansas. And everyone here has only one issue on their mind. How do we heal these children? And, and, and then if he did the, the most remarkable thing, he said, what if we could take the Palestinians and the Israelis who are at each other's throats and have them meet at a children's hospital, mm-hmm. have feel that power, that shared feeling that every human being must certainly have in that circumstance. And maybe after they shared that feeling and shared, you know, the desire to heal, they might find a way through um, some of their issues. And it was, I, I, it, I, it's still, I can hear his voice saying it mm-hmm. and thinking, what a remarkable kind of shock from, you know, golf and politics and, you know, but 
I would like to have a longer conversation with him. I've, I've read what he's written. I, I made it most of the way through his biography, although, you know, when most of us had one favorite teacher in grade school, we seemed to remember all of them. Mm. <laughs> and uh, so it wouldn't be a short conversation. Uh, he, he did come to London uh, one time. I remember this is going back ooh, probably 25, 27 years ago. And I was in the front row and I was in awe of his presence. And it was that informal chat that you spoke of. There was some heavy questions. There was some heavy things being talked about. But I loved how he handled the questions. He speaks eloquently. He, he's got a very soft demeanor. And uh, yeah, I, I think you need to get a hold of him and continue that conversation. Yes. Never say never, right? Never. Oh, the, the other thing that happened at the end of that dinner was he was spoken powerfully about the internet and the good it could do and how like-minded people could get together to solve problems. He talked about how there were now half a million charitable foundations in India and 600,000 in China or something like that. And the question he got was, was there any downside to this ability of people of like minds to get together? And he said, this was a Thursday night. He said, yes, people who have evil intent can also get together using the internet. And then he paused and he said, if you ever hear of a group called Al-Qaeda, it will be a dark day on the world. And 9-11 was four days later. And I remember when they first started talking Al-Qaeda, I was thinking, how do I know that name? And then, and I, I still get a chill thinking about it. He, he was an ex-president by then, but he was still getting security briefings. And he decided to maybe step over the line. But, you know, I, I don't know how you carry those burdens. It's one thing when you're in office, you could actually do something about it. Yeah. But... To, to, to keep getting that knowledge uh, when you can't do anything about it. Yeah. Must be an extraordinary burden. Although I, I like their system, the ex-presidents group, with one notable exception, are extraordinarily supportive across party lines. Yeah. It's, it, it, it comes to, it, it kind of brings that whole link of communication that we've had through this whole interview uh, even to that question, it's it really is the answer to a lot of things. I've, I've had CEOs say to me, well, Deb, that's common sense, but it isn't always your common practice. And sometimes I think we can get we can get uh, blurry vision when we're trying to do things. And sometimes the common sense approach doesn't seem like it's leadership enough when really it is. And um that's a great, that's a great story. I, I am so delighted that I've met you and I'm, I'm grateful you're feeling better and I'm glad that you could carve out the time to chat. And I'm going to ask you to finish the show by finishing this sentence for me. Heart-centered leadership is? Caring about the people you work with, caring about their families and their communities and caring about the people that the organization serves, be they citizens or customers, or clients or patients. 
Thanks so much for joining me today on Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed the show today and have learned some new tools for your leadership toolkit from our amazing Heart-Centered guest. If you like the show, feel free to give us a rating and a review, and we always welcome your feedback anytime. Looking to master the art of heart? Head over to our website at debcrow.com and watch out for Deb's new book, The Heart-Centered Leadership Playbook, coming in September. 